You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I thought Myrna, thank you, Myrna, for sharing that story with us. That's so helpful. Uh, I thought maybe you'd have to slip out um, because Myrna is obviously driving a new car since the accident. We don't want her to park her tractor trailer in front of the, 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 the church for more than about five minutes. Oh, gosh. Um, well, we are thirsty, and uh, we're talking about what happens in our lives when Jesus Christ increases and we decrease, get out of the way. One of the things that happens is that we turn from our own wells to find satisfaction in, in Him. In John chapter 4, the story of a woman at the well, Jesus shows us what He does with our loneliness. It's a story that begins with a woman who's rejected and it ends with a community that's reconnected. And see, it's not just about her. It's not just about this woman of Samaria, as our Bibles call her. A woman who long since stopped walking the face of this planet. This is about you and me. This is an invitation that Jesus has for each and every one of us this morning. He makes that so clear in the words we'll read in a moment when he says, Everyone who drinks, everyone who drinks, come to me all who are thirsty, because everyone who drinks. And I like the King James on that, you know, the old version. Whosoever, whosoever, that's as broad an invitation as could possibly be offered. And yet it is invitation and we must respond. To learn how to do so, let's open up God's Word together and read this text. Uh, It's John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. Uh, If you brought your own Bible, open that one up. If you didn't, uh, go ahead and grab the Pew Bible and open to page 865, John uh, 4, verses 13 through 14. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's Word aloud together as an act of worship. He seeks us as worshipers this morning. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. It's a little awkward for me to share this uh, story with you, but when I first came to University Presbyterian Church about four years ago as senior pastor, 2008, the fall, I wrote a letter to Steve Sarkeesian, the uh, head coach of um, University of Washington's football team. Probably the first letter that I ever put on UPC letterhead. But he, as you remember, was being called up here just after I came up here. So we came up right about the same time, and I thought, gee, there's so many similarities uh, between <laughs> Steve and me. It's just obvious. That, and so I, I sent him this letter to welcome him. And then I said, Steve, think about it for a second. I mean, both of us are moving up to Seattle from Los Angeles. Both of us are getting promotions, so to speak. Both of us have been the kind of number two guy down in L.A. And now we're sitting in the number, heaven help us, number one spot here in in Seattle. And uh, if you ever want to just kind of get together and compare notes on how that's going, you know, let me know. So 
So what am I doing? I'm, yeah, I'm being nice. I'm trying to welcome everyone expects pastors to do that. But no, more than that, I'm not doing that. I'm looking for a friend. Because I'm looking at a guy who, you know, and I don't know that much about football. It's maybe apparent to you by now. Uh, who I'm thinking, we have a lot in common. And uh, he might get my world. And I might get his world and the challenges that he faces. And so I'm thinking, you know, intimacy might be possible between me and Steve. Because intimacy, and here's my definition I want to give you this morning of intimacy. Intimacy is knowing and being known. And maybe in the stresses of our different jobs, we could come together and know one another and know that we've been known. And I, I didn't think of it quite so clearly at that time, but that's really what I was doing. And I waited for Steve to respond to my letter, and, uh, and, and then I looked at the newspaper and I saw his salary, and I realized, oh, I'm not going to hear back from Steve. I don't think he's going to be feeling the same kind of twinning that I'm feeling with him. And in fact, I never did get a letter, which is probably just as well, because I don't know how I would ever been able to hide that I could not for a day of my life ever have rooted for the Trojans. Um, and I, so I would have had to hide at least that secret from him. So things are working out fine. Yeah. Uh, we share that, don't we? Um, <laughs> loneliness is a thirst. In fact, the Greek word in the Bible for thirst is the same Greek word for yearning. It's just a, it's a, it's a yearning. Loneliness and thirst is a yearning. Loneliness is not the same thing as being alone. You know that. You can be alone and not be lonely. Or you can be surrounded by people. You can be in a long-term relationship. You could be in one of the largest airports in the world, absolutely packed with people, and feel utterly, devastatingly lonely. Here's my definition of loneliness. If intimacy is knowing and being known, loneliness is a yearning for intimacy that you don't feel. That you don't feel. It's a subjective experience. It's social pain. And it's real pain. You psychologists, neuroscientists are telling us now that MRI are showing that the, the center in the brain where we feel that pain is the same emotional center where we feel physical pain. It's the same thing. It hurts. And yet the truth is, you know, yearning is a good thing. Loneliness, even loneliness is a good thing. Why? Well, it's, it's like thirst. Think about it. I mean, what would happen if you never got thirsty? Your body needs hydration. But if you didn't get thirsty, you'd go an hour, you'd go a day, you'd go a week, you'd go a month, and then you'd die. Or you just wouldn't know what's wrong with you. But well, the same thing would happen with loneliness. You know, with social isolation and a feeling of rejection, you might just live with that. And an hour would go by, and a day would go by, and a month would go by, and pretty soon you die of loneliness. It's like God put a, a warning line on the dashboard of your life. It says, George, you're feeling lonely. It's because you're disconnected. Because you don't have enough intimacy in your life. See that thing? You feel that thing? You're supposed to do something with it. You need to go get a drink. Right? You need to go satisfy. That part of your being that's created for a relationship. The fact is, we do. We go. We, do, we all do something with our loneliness. But I want, to, I want you to see here that loneliness is not just a problem that happened to this marginalized woman in ancient times. It's about all of us. Every single one of us. 
Right now, there are at least three people sitting in your pew that, are, that know they're not happy because they're lonely. And the rest of that pew will feel that in a day or two. So the question is, how does Jesus do what he does for this woman? How does he do it for us? Because he's got this rejected woman and she's a reconnected woman. And what happens between those two points? I mean, how does Jesus reconnect us when we feel rejected? We just, you know, look at her story. We've got point A and point B. I want you to see the significance of this. At point A, at the beginning of the story, she's by a well alone, but she's lonely. She's got an experience of, of subjective rejection. Ethnically, she's a Samaritan. So for the Jewish audience, they go, oh, my gosh. You know, those people, they, they have, they've had problems with marriage since the 8th century. They married pagans when the Assyrians carried away the Israelites. Okay, she's ethnically rejected. She's socially rejected because we learn what the town knows about her already, and that is she's living out of wedlock. Ethnically, socially, and then most personally, she is relationally rejected. We'll come to find out she has had five husbands, and the woman, the man that she's with right now is not her husband, as Jesus will point out. Now, it's... it's common to think about her as kind of a Paris Hilton or a Lindsay Lohan or a Larry King, you know, running around and having the black, you know, but that's not the way first century patriarchal traditional societies work. It's far more likely that what's going on in this woman's life is that she's a, a victim. I mean, she, she's, she's had tragedy. I don't think this is her fault. It's likely that She's had husbands who have died and left her destitute. It's likely that she's been a victim of really thoughtless divorce for the smallest of reasons. Maybe she couldn't have a child. It's likely that she's being exploited right now by a man who just will not give her the privilege of marriage but wants all the benefits from her. And there's shame in all of that. This is her secret. And she hides it. And she doesn't really want to talk to anybody else. She didn't really want to even run into another person. She's come to the well in the heat of the day at noon. And none of the women would have done that. They've all come in the morning when it was cool, and they're going to come back at night when it's cool. And she says, I can't take that. She yearns for intimacy. But she can't find it. And we're the same way. So what I want to know is what happens between point A and point B, when at point B, this woman goes back into the city by herself. She goes in there and she raises her voice and we overhear her as John gives us this good news. She says, I met a man, which is a kind of a bizarre thing for this woman to say to the town. They're like, we know what else is new. But I met a man who told me everything I have done. And she's got a smile on her face. And she calls to the very same people who have rejected her. She calls them into the, into the town square and she gives witness to Jesus. And now we've got a community that's being formed, not around her narrative of shame, not around their narrative of rejection, but around a whole new narrative of an increasing Jesus Christ. It's about him. He's truly the savior of the world, they say. So from A to B, what happens? Well, and here's the point. She turns to Jesus with her thirst. And that's the invitation for us, too, this morning, to turn to Jesus with our thirst. He is as ready for you as he was for her. 
If you remember the story, he is driving at her thirst from the very first thing. Everything she says is like a pitch that he hits back at her thirst. She says, uh, well, he, he, he starts, he says, I, I love some water. She walks up and he's sitting on the well. He's tired. Can't, doesn't have anything to get out of the water. She, Can you give me some water? He says, and she says, well, this is really strange. You, a Jewish man, are talking to me, a Samaritan. What's up with that? And Jesus gets going. He says, if you knew the one who's standing in front of you, who asked you this question, you would have asked him for water. And he would have given you living water. Now, we begin to think something weird is going on at this point. She probably doesn't. Living water simply means running water. It's fresh water. It's water you can drink. And so she goes, where do you get living water? You don't have any bucket and the well is deep. Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? And then he reads, he says to her what you have already read. Everyone who drinks of this water, this great well, as great as it is, will get thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty, Jesus says. Will you turn to me, he's saying. Will you slake your thirst? Will you bring your loneliness to me? You do have to do something with your thirst. He knows it and she knows it. He's, he's, he's using an analogy. It was the thirst for literal water that drove you out of that city when you'd been rather sitting alone at home. Jesus says, it is the thirst for spiritual water that is driving the narrative of your life. Your whole life is about quenching that yearning for intimacy. It's a great illustration. It's pretty compelling for her at that moment. You need to know and to be known. You need to know how much you're loved. And you've come here because I want to satisfy that yearning inside of you. And so I ask myself questions. I begin, I begin to wrestle with this. I go, well, okay. Jesus says, if you knew the generosity of God, the gift of God, and if you knew the one who's standing in front of you, then you would have asked me. And I begin to wonder, um, do I know the generosity of God? Do I know the one, Jesus Christ, who's standing in front of me? And, and other questions like, what do I do with my loneliness? What are the wells that I go to? What strategies do I have to satisfy my own yearning for intimacy? And how do these same strategies leave me lonelier and thirstier than I was before I even began? And I immediately think of how so often during the day I thrust my hand just without thinking into my pocket. Why? Because I have a smartphone there. And I'm just wondering, is there anybody thinking of George? And I look, and there isn't. <laughs> it's just work. I mean, I don't know. What about you? And there's so many different ways that we go about satisfying our thirst. We go to the web. We browse and browse and look at all kinds of stuff. We affiliate with social networks. And we think, what does, does reading someone's status update, you know, seeing a, a photo of their kitty cat really satisfy that need for intimacy or make it worse in some way? We go to the, a book, a novel. I'm reading a huge novel right now, which I love. And I, and I just want to sit down with that book. Or I go to a TV show, you know. And I, these characters become members of my family. And it's devastating to, if, if someone reminds me that um, Don Draper doesn't even know I exist. Matthew Crawley doesn't know my name. <clears throat> what do we do? Well, maybe we go to work. We dive in and we just get busier and busier. But then we think, is it really, is busyness the solution or is it more a contributor to the problem? 
We think about our relationships, maybe another hookup, maybe some real romance, maybe even a marriage. And then you begin to think, why are so many of my married friends the loneliest people on the planet? Is that really the solution? We uh, think about, well, we could get more socially involved. Uh, we, we could do stuff, volunteer. We could go to Sounders games, play Xbox, go to a bar, have an affair, be more popular, be more beautiful, have more prestige. Here's a question. Why is it that if you can't get people to love you, it's almost as good to get them to fear you? And we're, see how thirsty we are. And it's driving our lives. We're going from well after well. And Jesus says, you can do that all you want. But you drink out of any other well than me and you will be thirsty again. And why do you do that? Because I have abundant water. The reason you're thirsty, Jesus says to us, is that I made you. I made you for relationship. From all eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this intimate, loving, celebratory, joyful dance. Three persons in relationship said, let us make human beings in our image. And you're like them and you're made by me, Jesus, says, to be a part of that fellowship. To know and be known. To be sustained in that relationship with me and with other people. And it's just gone so terribly wrong for all of you. And I came to draw you back. To reconnect you. Not to reject you, but to reconnect you. And so, I think she's learning what Augustine said in his prayer. Thou hast made me, O God, for yourself. And my soul is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Or Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, says, All of us have a God-shaped vacuum in our lives and we'll throw all kinds of junk in there, but nothing will satisfy until God fills that space. Or David, who in the desert sings this hymn, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Accept no substitutes. Turn to Jesus with your thirst. When we do this, what does Jesus do with our loneliness exactly? I mean, this is a good question. Let me just take a couple minutes here. There are two things. First of all, he gives us intimacy with him. She says, this is about worship, isn't it? And he says, well, kind of, but not the worship the way you're thinking about it, worshiping on this mountain or that mountain or here or there or this church or that church. Worship, if you want to think about it in terms of relationship, yes. Spirit and truth worship. Spirit of the Holy, person of the Holy Spirit in your life and near to you, connecting you to me, making you alive in me, alive in Christ. Yeah, that worship. And truth. Why that word? Truth is a really important word for this passage. Six times it comes up in, in one form or another. Six times. If you're in a small group this week, you might want to ask, why truth? And uh, <clears throat> as my small group will be doing on Wednesday. You, anytime you see that kind of repetition, you know that it's there for a reason, and it's a clue that the author is giving it, that there's something deeper there. And the word truth, actually, in Greek, is a compound word. It's two words pushed together. The word ah, which means not and uh, lathrios, which means secret or hidden. So the Greek word is aletheia, not secret or hidden. That's truth. Now, why does this matter? It matters because when Jesus invites you and me to worship, he's inviting you to a worship in which you can be known and in which you can know. 
See, this kind of worship that Jesus brings to us is worship in which we know God. God has unveiled himself for humanity in Jesus Christ. He's literally shown us his face. That's the whole point of the gospel. And we get John's prologue. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word reveals himself. He made, he's made flesh. He comes to dwell among us. That's why when Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's this transparency between Jesus and the Father. So that through Jesus, we know God completely. That's why Christian worship, spirit and truth worship, is always centered entirely on Jesus Christ, the living word. And we know about Jesus through the written words, why we study our Bibles. So that we can worship him and know him. But also, it's not just that uh, worship is to be true. It's the worshipers themselves are invited to be true. Do you notice that in verse 23? He seeks true worshipers. That is that intimacy is not just about knowing, but it's about being known. And here, it's not just God who becomes unhidden. It's we who become unhidden as we come into his presence with worship, wherever we are. Very gently, Jesus says, let me take the veil of hiddenness off of your life. Let me let me lift that off. Let's just let's just surface the real you. Let's just let your secrets come to the surface. This text reminds us in many ways we are our secrets. And Jesus loves us in the midst of that. I know you. You've had five husbands. And she begins to recoil because nobody wants to be known that intimately because it's just not safe, usually. But notice there's no judgment, there's no criticism, there's no shame, there's no scorn, there's not a hint of rejection in Jesus. He's not rejecting her. He's reconnecting her. In fact, he even finds a way to affirm her. When she says, oh, I don't have a husband, he goes, you have spoken truly. He affirms her. So you've been so clever to phrase that response just that way because it's a true statement. But I know the real truth. That's that you're yearning to be known. And you've just found the one who can satisfy. So true worship is worship in which we know we can be known. And I want to say to you this morning that you can never know. You and I can never know perfect intimacy until we know perfect grace. And Jesus is the only source of perfect grace. But he is a source. He is the source. So we find intimacy with Jesus. There's a relationship with Jesus. If, if you come to know Jesus through faith, then you'll know that he'll always be with you. You talk to him throughout the day. You pray. You know that he gives you strength for the day. He's there through his spirit within you. But he also gives you intimacy with others. This is the second answer to our question. What does Jesus do with our loneliness? He connects us to himself. We become alive in Christ, which means we live in intimate relationship with him. But then we become alive together with one another. This woman goes back and kind of like a great cinematographer, John gives us a shot of that bucket sitting by the well. She leaves it behind, symbolically reminding us she is so satisfied. She does not need that bucket anymore. And she goes back into the city for a relationship with the townspeople those who had rejected her. And she doesn't do it because she's commanded to do it. You should love your neighbors. She doesn't do it because Jesus says, oh, you should really forgive, or you really must be in a small group. She doesn't do it because she's being obedient in any way. She's doing it because she's got something within herself that just cannot be contained. She's like an artesian well. Bernie, you said it right. Living water is flowing water, and you just can't hold on to it. Now she's drunk at the well of living water, and... And the well is within her. I love what Don Muma said. This is a story of a woman who came for water, but who went home with the well. 
like an artesian well, you know, you just can't, you just can't, because of gravity, you can't suppress that submerged water. It's just got to come up, and it's coming out. And she just, of, of her own, she goes back to these people. She goes, i got to find some people to share this intimacy with. I met a man who told me everything. He knows everything about me, and he loves me just the same. And I'm thinking, it's going to be the same with you. Turns out to be. Here's a negative way of saying it. Have you ever noticed that needy people drive needy people away? And that's the tragedy of really when you're in a place of need in your life, you, in some ways you're the least qualified person to find someone to help you with that need. Our need will never drive Jesus away. And when we look to Jesus to satisfy our neediness, then we have an abundance in our lives out of which we have capacity now to enter into healthy relationships so that we don't bring our thirst into the relationships Help me, help me, do this for me, make this work, have to manipulate or control so that the relationship serves my needs. We bring a well into the relationship. Let me serve you, let me give you, let me bless you. That's the transformation. And now intimacy becomes impossible, not just with Jesus, but with other people in my lives. People with whom I thought I could never have anything in common. What does this look like? Just give me three quick examples. Let me, let's talk about students. Do you not remember how horrifying it was in high school or college at lunchtime to have to walk into that cafeteria and find a place to sit? The truth is we never get that far away from high school. It's still that way for us. Um, But those of you who are in college, your students are high school, when you walk into that, you see a table for jocks, you see a table for the smart people, you see a table for the rich people, a table for the beautiful people, a table for the creative people, and you go, where in the world am I going to sit? There's no place for me. I can't find acceptance anywhere. And yet, if you have first turned to Jesus Christ and you know his acceptance of you, if you know and believe what the Apostle Paul knows and believes, as he says in Timothy 6, that Jesus Christ is the one who gives life to all things, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, to him is all honor and eternal dominion. If you know him and that he accepts you, I think you can sit wherever you want. And you just don't care. In fact, you have an opportunity to draw other people into the beauty of what you've known in Jesus. Or uh, those of you who are married, those of us who are married. I know what it's like to get into a place with my spouse where I'm sideways and a little thing has become a major thing. And I begin to think, I'm hurt and you don't understand me. But before I get there, what if, what if I took some time at the well of Jesus And allowed him to satisfy my need for being known and to know him intimately. Then I come into my relationship with my wife with a whole new attitude, knowing the abundance of God's love for me. I have love overflowing and I can serve my spouse and say, what's going to be best for you today? Or those of you who are seniors and you're retired and you know that temptation when you first come and you you meet somebody, interact with them, to wonder, how would this be different if they knew my accomplishments you know, if they knew who I was back in the day and you try to find ways of dropping hints and, until they kind of figure out how great a person you are because you need that affirmation. Or, or maybe there are their hurts in the past. You have a history with this person and you've made assumptions about them and you've drawn conclusions and those begun, begin to be sort of the bars within which that relationship is going to be lived. But what if before you do that, you come to Jesus? You come to the one who says, I made you. I haven't lost hope for your life. My mercies are new every morning. I, I have a call for you in the rest of your life. I have a call for you today and a mission. And you, you don't need to prove yourself. 
You come with fresh eyes, fresh heart, fresh hands into all of your relationships. Well, the choice is yours. I know it's not easy to be vulnerable with Jesus. I know it's hard even to believe in Jesus sometimes. He didn't ask her about her faith. He just says, you come to me with your loneliness. Let me satisfy you. If you knew who it was who stands before you, if you knew the generosity of God, you would have asked him. So now we know. Let's ask him. Jesus Christ, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this invitation. Now uh, you have drawn us to a well with the challenges and the burdens and the hurts and the wounds of our lives. And you've asked us to consider whether we know you. We pray for ourselves. If we have never come to faith in Jesus, if we have never said to you, I do, take my life, I give it to you, that I might live my life in you, and that you might live your life through me. Let us come to know you this morning. If we have walked with you for decades and yet forgotten what it's like to be sustained and worship spirit and truth, break into the hardness. Let your well flow up and out of our lives in ways that only you can mysteriously make happen. Thank you that you've not rejected us. Let us open our eyes and look now for this gift of reconnection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.